My name is Martina Gozzi. I'm a sociology student and Green Ambassador at the University of Greenwich. This is the first of a trilogy of podcasts around environmental issues, sustainability and sustainable living. This trilogy is a legacy of the University of Greenwich series of podcasts called The Green Pod, created by students and volunteers with support from the sustainability team and eco team. In today's focus, we'll be discussing green criminology, considering our environmental arm is not only destroying our planet, but also closely affecting poor people, especially those belonging to minority groups. With me today, Dr. Melissa Pepper and Sophie Joyce. Dr. Melissa Pepper is a lecturer in criminology in the School of Law and Criminology. Melissa joined the university in January 2020, after 18 years of working in government social research, including the Home Office and most recently London Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. Melissa teaches a range of subjects in a role at Greenwich, many of which link to central themes of power and inequality. Sophie completed a Bachelor degree in Criminology last year. She is now progressing through a postgraduate certification in education with a focus on criminology. I will start with Melissa. Melissa, what is your role within the University of Greenwich? Thanks, Martina. So, as you said in the introduction, um, I'm a lecturer in the School of Law and Criminology and I focus on uh, the criminology side of the school. So my uh, research interests are mainly around policing, so more specifically the citizens' role in policing, um, the extension of the police family beyond the uniformed or warranted police officer and mechanisms of police community engagement. So that's my specific field of interest. But my research interests go a lot further than this to many fields of criminology. And as you mentioned, a common theme throughout much of criminology is around issues of power, control and inequality. Who has the power to define uh, what is or isn't a crime? Who has the power to define who is or isn't criminal? And how does that play out in the real world in terms of who does or doesn't face prosecution or some other form of penalty for the harm that they cause? So lots of research interests, but mainly focused around those themes of power, control and inequality. And what do you think? is um actually sorry <sighs> i need to <laughs> what is green criminology melissa so green criminology is a sub branch within the broader discipline of criminology and it's a fairly new kid on the block really with publications teaching modules conference papers things like that really starting to emerge in the uk over the last 15 to 20 years or so However, um, as I mentioned, the themes that green criminology draws upon, those sort of theoretical foundations are not new and they really chime with some of the issues that I just mentioned around power, control, inequality and justice. 
So as with a lot of issues in criminology, and you will be familiar with this through your sociology studies as well, there's a lot of debate about terminology here. So green criminology is probably the most uh, commonly used term, but you also hear of eco-crime, environmental criminology, and I'm sure there's lots of others as well. So according to um, uh, A.V. Brisman and Nigel South, who are like real key writers on this, they argue that green criminology is most frequently used to describe the study of ecological, environmental or green crime or harm and the related matters of speciesism and environmental injustice. I think an even more accessible definition comes from Gary Potter, who is an academic at Lancaster University. And when he thinks about uh, the study of green criminology, he talks about um, offences. So what crimes or harms are inflicted on the environment? Offenders. So who commits crime against the environment and why? And victims. So who suffers as a result of environmental damage and how? And he also talks about the responses to environmental crime. So policing, punishment and crime prevention. And do you have a more uh, specific definition for eco-crime? So eco-crime sort of falls within, again, it's just one of those terms which uh, which um, some people use to uh, define or, or refer to green criminology. So they're often under the same umbrella of terms. So you'll often hear them used interchangeably, eco-crime, green criminology, environmental crime. So we're usually talking about the same type of things here. However, ecological justice is definitely one of the key perspectives within green criminology. And uh, ecological justice really focuses on the relationship between humans and the natural environment and conserving and protecting ecological well-being. So it's kind of within the same family, uh, but there is a specific branch of ecological justice, which is uh, kind of studied within green criminology. What kind of eco-crime are we discussing about? So do you mean a specific example there or? Yes. I think there's probably a few examples that you could draw on there. As I said, this is about the relationship between humans and the natural environment and protecting ecological well-being. Um and that could, I mean, I mean, that could draw on a number of areas here. We could be talking about issues of air pollution, uh, deforestation, water pollution, uh, more broadly, resource depletion in the world. And a lot of this is linked to um, means of production. So often uh, overproduction, overconsumption and the harms that can be caused by this. Again, that's edging towards what I mentioned earlier about these themes of power, control and injustice. Green criminologists are often very critical criminologists in that they challenge positions of power and authority and traditional notions of justice. And uh, we would certainly see within some of our examples and Sophie I'm sure sees this within some of her examples as well that the uh, the people causing damage uh, causing harm are often uh, large-scale corporations states and those experiencing that the worst effects of the harm are often um, 
people who um, who suffer other injustices in their life, indigenous communities, etc. Yeah. Why it is important to discuss environmental harm within criminology? So it's important for lots of reasons. And I think this falls within two main areas. So it's important for theoretical reasons, but it's also important for practical reasons as well. So from a theoretical perspective, green criminology, as I just mentioned, really draws on critical criminology, which seeks to challenge and question traditional understandings and notions of what is criminal, what is deviant or not and who gets to create and enforce legal responses to crime or deviance. And a lot of our broader thinking is about injustice and powerlessness in criminology. And Rhys Walters, one of the key writers here, he argues that green criminology is a key part of unravelling that power, injustice and discrimination further. So some of the issues that are really important to green criminology, as I mentioned, deforestation, the impact of commercial processes of production and consumption, um, exploitation of um, of powerless people, uh, often in developing countries or indigenous people uh, in the name of capitalism and large scale pollution by these multi-billion pound corporations. They're based upon institutional bias, corruption and state power. And that's what we think about within broader critical criminology. So theoretically, green criminology is important to us because it's part of this bigger picture of um, exposing and challenging um, unequal distributions of power. So that's the theory side. But from a practical perspective, green criminology and the harms caused by environmental ecological damage, they are happening around us every single day through the harmful effects of climate change, you know, forest fires in California and parts of Australia, floods across parts of the UK and many other parts of the world. Arguably, even our current COVID situation has links between the natural world and society more broadly. Um, and I think green criminology is a real activist criminology. And uh, Nigel South, one of the key authors that write about green criminology, argues that green criminology requires an intellectual discourse which moves beyond the narrow boundaries of traditional criminology and draws together political and practical action to shape public policy. This is a criminology where we can really make a difference now and looking ahead to the future. Currently, in recent studies, what are the practical aims of green criminology? So I think um, we fall within three main perspectives here within the study of green criminology. And I mentioned one earlier around ecological justice. So studying and understanding the relationship between human beings and the natural environment and looking at how to conserve and protect ecological well-being. So that would be one of the three uh, perspectives of study. We've also got environmental justice, which is um, a very human centred approach, which focuses on healthy and safe environments for everybody, uh, for future generations and the harms that potentially jeopardise this. So things here we would be thinking about air pollution, for example. So that would be environmental justice. 
There's also a third perspective uh, known as species justice, which is a non-human centred approach, which focuses on ensuring the well-being of all species. And this is quite an interesting one because it doesn't uh, place a hierarchy on existence where human beings are at the top. So it's an approach which suggests that uh, there is no hierarchy and that human beings are not, uh, are not at the pinnacle of a hierarchy. So uh, green criminologists look at things such environmental uh, harms. They look at environmental laws, including who gets prosecuted under those laws and environmental regulation. So systems to preserve and protect the environment. And we think of green criminology and uh, the effects um, and the issues that we study within them within primary and secondary groups. So the, I find this really interesting. The primary uh, groups within green criminology would be things such as air pollution, deforestation, species decline or animal rights, water pollution, resource depletion, etc. So they would be classed as primary harms. But there's also this uh, this branch of secondary harms, which is really interesting, such as uh, the role of organised crime within smuggling hazardous waste, for example, or uh, something which has perhaps been in the press more recently, particularly in the UK, is around the state police response to environmental protesters, how the police respond to those who are um, advocating and our activists for protecting the environment and as before I sound a little bit like a broken record but at the heart of all of this is power and injustice so those harms that are committed are, are often uh, committed created and exacerbated by some of the most powerful in society with the most damaging effects often experienced most harshly by those with the least power in society. What have been achieved up to date thanks to green criminology? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think recognising... So, so I think probably two things in terms of the study of green criminology. So there, there would be... Um, the opportunity to theorise this area, as I mentioned before. So um, uh, we have a, a strong branch of critical criminologists within the criminology discipline, those that challenge, question uh, traditional notions of power and authority. And that critical lens uh, has been kind of uh, extended to think of green criminology. So I think that that has been a real achievement to start viewing environmental harms through this critical lens. I think the other big thing that's been achieved is something I've just touched upon, and it is extending um, our thinking in criminology. You know, as criminologists, we've literally got the word crime within our titles and within our discipline. But crime sometimes uh, and, and thinking about crime sometimes leads you to thinking about quite a narrow legal framework. So we often define crime in terms of something that has broken the law. I think what green criminology does and what some other areas of criminology do is they push the boundaries of this and they get us to stop thinking specifically about crime as defined by the law and they start us thinking more about harm that is caused. Now, some of that harm may or may not be defined within legislation as criminal um, and some of it uh, is 
considerably more harmful or causes greater harm to greater numbers of people than some things that we consider to be criminal. So I think that, that's been a great contribution here for us to broaden the way we think about harm and the way we think about crime. Okay, is there a particular case study are you interested in? Yeah, so I had a think about this before our uh, before our podcast recording, and I think there's been a couple of things that have really stuck with me when I've been uh, developing teaching and uh, you know having conversations with students about green criminology. So back in 2018, the Guardian newspaper ran a really powerful story, which uh, it was like a series of stories which they called the Defenders. And it was stories of people, individual people who had risked their lives, were risking their lives or in some cases had tragically lost their lives while defending the environment. And the Guardian referred to this um, as the battle between those who promote conservation and those who promote consumption. So uh, a really interesting way of considering that. And uh, I guess it's a broader example rather than a specific one. But um, the the articles uh, talk about people in Brazil, the Philippines, Colombia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Mexico, Uganda, Turkey and other countries who are risking and tragically losing their lives defending the land, forests, rivers or other wildlife. Um, and there was one particular uh, case which I think really demonstrates uh, the reach of green issues that go beyond uh, thinking about the environment. A case of a, a gentleman called Samir Flores Soberanes, uh, who was an indigenous person of Mexico. He was shot dead in 2019, just before a referendum on a really controversial um, gas pipeline and uh, thermal electric plant uh, that he'd been uh, campaigning and fighting against. Now, Mr. Flores had uh, apparently been receiving death threats since 2012 over his role in uh, defending uh, his land. And uh, this tragically wasn't the first time that an environmental or human rights defender had been killed in Mexico. And the People's uh, Front in Defence of the Land and Water, a group in Mexico, called this a political crime. They very much pinned this at the door of politicians and said that uh, this man had lost his life because of uh, uh, because of, uh, of political uh, crime, essentially. Um, I'm also interested in the policing of environmental activists. So um, Reese Waters, one of the key writers here, he argues that environmental activists have become a threat to corporate and governing elites that seek power and profit through the exploitation of natural resources. So people that are campaigning for the environment, they are a threat to the state, essentially. And uh, there was quite a big case uh, over recent years, which which came to public attention around police infiltration of green activist groups, uh, particularly in the UK, since the case of a police officer called Mark Kennedy and other police officers who we now know went undercover for many years as part of an environmental campaign group. Um, and they had relationships with and even fathered children with other campaigners who were not aware of their true identities. So this uh, this kind of secondary uh, environmental green crime um, is very interesting. 
In January last year, uh, counter-terrorism police placed the environmental campaign group Extinction Rebellion on a list of extremist ideologies that should be reported to authorities who run the government's counter-terrorism prevent programme. So this is uh, environmental activists being defined and treated as um as extremists, as potential terrorists by the UK police. It's fascinating stuff. And according to Reese Walters, this is because they pose a threat to uh, corporate and governing elites. Uh, you have been talking about infiltration by police officers within uh, these activists, a uh, group of activists. What are the ethical complications of this infiltration? Oh, my goodness. How long have we got for this podcast? Um, I think it touches upon a number of areas. I think um, and, I, and I think maybe because of the uh, focus of these activists, the, the hurt and the harm perhaps hit deeper uh, for many uh, for many of these activists. It's um, such a fundamental part of their existence that they are activists and that they advocate for green rights. And for that, um, that what I imagine is quite a community of activists for them to later learn that that had been infiltrated by state police, I can imagine was an incredibly shocking thing, not least for those who formed very close, intimate relationships with those whom they did not know their true identities. Um, I've listened to some other podcasts recently where um, uh, some of the women who had relationships with these officers have come forward and spoken about it and uh, are deeply traumatised by um by the effects of those relationships and question, uh, you know, their experiences and, and their work as activists because of, of those relationships, which they later found out about. Yeah, the ethical implications of that run incredibly deep. Considering that um, activists sometimes uh, go through kind of criminal action to get their voice heard, would you consider this a because it's of a great public concern? Would you consider this legit? Oh, that's a tricky one, Sophie. You need to get your brain thinking on that as well because <laughs> I want your views on that. That's a tricky one, but it's a very, very good question. So. I'm going to sit massively on the fence here, which is not what you want to hear. But what I'm going to say is I'm not part of a green activist group, so I can't speak for members of green activist groups. However, shifting my thinking, I would imagine some of them might argue that the harm that uh, that the world is currently facing because of climate change, because of deforestation, because of um because of the fact that global leaders, and I think we know exactly who we're talking about there, are retreating from uh, former global leaders, I should say, thank goodness, are retreating from uh, global climate change agreements. The harm that that causes far, far outweighs the harm that any uh, crime that they would commit in the name of advocacy and activism causes. So I would imagine on the balance of harm, that is what a green activist might say. I'm not a green activist, though, although, of course, believe strongly in uh, in in preserving our planet, of course. So I'm kind of on the fence there. But yeah, what do you think, Sophie, of what I've just put together? <laughs> 
No, I completely agree. I would say I'm on the fence as well, because whilst as well, I'm not a green activist either. I do strongly believe in preserving our environment and our planet, really. And I think it really comes from a lot of more younger people at the moment. So when you have older world leaders making all the decisions that aren't going to affect them in 20 to 30 years time, that focus, I believe it does become more important than the actions that they're committing, whether they are criminal and if they are criminal. But again, sitting on the fence, if it's a criminal action, we have laws. It's a very tricky fence to be on. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is a tricky one to negotiate. I should say that uh, Extinction Rebellion being on a counter-terrorism list, you know, at the very heart of Extinction Rebellion is a non-violent approach. They are a very peaceful protesting group. Um, Yes, yeah, that was a very good question, Martina. You threw us into that one. However, (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, I think Sophie and I are perhaps both on the same page here about weighing up the balance of harm created by uh, getting your voice heard around uh, around the the damage we're doing to our planet versus the seismic, enormous damage we are doing to our planet. Mm. I think, yeah, the balance of harms there is different. Yeah, I think as well, you need to consider what they're doing, because there are methods to go about this that aren't criminal, mainly through media, as you'll all know, like David Attenborough joined Instagram, which blew up massively. And I'm sure it has had an impact on kind of raising this awareness. So it is a really difficult, a really good question. But yeah, it's this crime but it's for a really good cause. It is very tricky, but there is methods to go about it which are not criminal. Mm. And of course, the vast, vast, vast majority of advocates and activists, of course, get their voices heard without any criminal actions whatsoever. But um, yeah, you threw us into that one, Martina, didn't you? Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you both. Um, that was really interesting. I would focus on uh, Sophie now. I briefly introduced you before, but is there anything else you would like to say about yourself? Well, just hello. And yes, as you said, I am currently studying my postgraduate certificate in education at Greenwich. I'm also on placement at Greenwich, which is really nice because I'm working alongside Melissa and some others in the law and criminology department. And Yeah, I have a degree in criminology, which I finished last year at the University of Essex. And basically, my love and interest of criminology has led me into teaching. And I hope to complete my PGCE by the end of this year and be working in September. Thank you. In relation of green criminology, what are your interests? I first became interested in green criminology This was initially in like my first year of university when I was doing my bachelor's. So I had a lecture on it and 
this interest continued to grow throughout my bachelor's degree is every year we would have at least one lecture on it and it would pop up in other modules so for example i did a module on crime media and culture and we had a really good lecture one time that brought in environmental harm and the use of media to raise awareness which was just incredibly interesting and as i say a really good method to raise awareness and i believe that my main interest with green criminology came after a lecture in my final year of uni which covered eco global harms and criminology and what i came to understand is that green criminology encompasses the dimensions of damage, injustice and social harms often neglected by criminal law and by the criminal justice system. But the element of green criminology which interests me the most is actually the crime of ecocide, which is a really serious act, but it is unfortunately not widely known. So, Ecocide is the extensive damage, destruction or loss of an ecosystem or ecosystems in a given territory, whether by human agency or by other causes, and to such an extent that peaceful enjoyment by the inhabitants of that territory has been severely diminished. And this is a really great definition of ecocide, which was given by Polly Higgins in 2010. And so this concept of ecocide is interesting to me due to its close connection with genocide, as you can hear in the very similar names. But however, it fails to reach the same recognition or criminal sanctions as genocide. So <laughs> coming to more of a political standpoint behind it. Currently in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, ecocide is explained as being the intentional causing of widespread long term and severe damage to the natural environment within wartime. So what I'm focusing on focusing here is on wartime. And there's a really good uh, theorist Richard A. Falk, who prepared a draft international convention on the crime of ecocide. And he argued that it's necessary to recognise that we are actually living in a period of increasing danger of ecological collapse and that man has consciously and unconsciously inflicted irreparable damage to the environment in times of war and also times of peace. So he's coming from this perspective that it's not only in wartime, but it is also in peacetime, which I think is incredibly important to focus on. And Falk's statement is a statement that I massively agree with. Because we are facing severe ecological harm and it is occurring in times of peace. And this needs to be recognised by criminal law and the criminal justice system on a universal level. So this is a question for both of you. And Melissa previously suggested about the anthropological view of green criminology. Is there, do you think that this is the reason why ecocide is not considered as uh, genocide? 
it's a very good question. Um, I think I think you're right, Martina. I think human life is valued, particularly within the eyes of the law. Human life is highly valued, uh, which is something that I do not dispute whatsoever. But I think that comes back to these broader definitions of harm. And if we consider if we stop thinking about crime through a legally defined framework and start thinking about harm caused and the actions that cause harm, harm, um, this destruction of environments, destruction of habitats um, starts to take on um, a new sense of meaning and a new sense of purpose. And I mentioned before these primary and secondary types of green crime, essentially, the primary uh, green crime could be the destruction of this environment. But if you look at the secondary harm that is caused by that, um, which can impact hugely upon quality of life, upon ability to live, upon famine, upon water shortage, these fundamental aspects of being able to survive as a human being, it slightly shifts that focus uh, back towards the human and I don't think that you can necessarily separate the two. Yeah, I agree with where Melissa is coming from. It's the law definitely focuses on humans as a priority. Green criminology and ecocide, it needs to be taken out of this legal uh, framework, especially with these secondary, uh, secondary crimes. So these taking out of this legal framework and moving to look at the wider implications because these secondary crimes very much impact on humans but they're not considered because the primary impact has been on potentially a species or just a element or an area of the environment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, agree, Sophie. And I think um, I think the anthropocentric, it's a difficult word to say uh, at quarter past six in the evening, the anthropocentric view, um, which values, uh, which values nature because of the material or physical benefits that it can provide to humans, inadvertently always leads us back to capitalism, I think. Capitalism, uh, consumerism, production, and this view of the world as the value it can provide to uh, making a better life for humans. And I think at a surface level, that leads us to more production, more consumption. However, if you scratch that surface level away, um, the, the, the material or physical benefit for humans in the long term is a more ecocentric view, which has a, a more rounded appreciation of nature rather than it just being there to serve the human preserving our planet and uh, and and for the future generations both now and looking ahead to tomorrow is what's going to be of most benefit to humans beyond this excessive consumption thank you um is there sophie is there a particular case study you would like to discuss with us yes definitely so the case study that i find really interesting is uh a well-known one so it is the oil spill in the gulf of mexico so this was after an explosion on the bp Deepwater horizon oil rig and it kind of comes back to linking to what melissa has just said about this idea of capitalism and consumption so 
they were drilling for oil and unfortunately there's been an explosion. And the reason why this particular case is interesting to me is mainly it was recorded as the biggest oil spill ever in US waters, mainly due to there was 130 million gallons of crude oil spilt. And so it still remains one of the worst environmental disasters in world history. And the consequences of this disaster was that not only did 11 of the rig workers die, but so did like untold millions of marine animals. So these included sea turtles, uh, birds and fish. And unfortunately, the damage from this disaster continues to affect marine life today. And looking more at the consequences, not only did some people die at the base of the explosion and wildlife and marine life have been affected, but so have other human lives. So after the oil spill, a threat of human health was discovered when more than 300 individuals sought medical care and they were seeking medical care for symptoms including coughing, respiratory distress and chest pain. So this oil spill has affected the workers, the wider public in this area and animals and species. So it's had a really wide impact on a lot of factors. And the thing that I always come back to and that I find most distressing is that there were no criminal prosecutions sought from this. So even the two BP supervisors who were in charge of the rig had any charges against them dropped. And so as a consequence, without any charges being imposed, the Gulf of Mexico, this oil spill has left continued damage and just continues to be labelled as a tragic accident. So overall, I believe that it is imperative for us to kind of, again, look back at this legal framework of green criminology, of environmental crimes, and start holding those of harms responsible, especially big corporations, because they are the ones particularly causing the harm. And by holding them accountable, we can raise more awareness and again, yeah, just have them be held accountable for their destructive actions. We're coming towards the end of this uh, this podcast. Thank you so much to, for participating. And this podcast, it is quite interesting. I hope it doesn't overwhelm anyone because uh, when we talk about sustainable living, most of the time we think about recycling, we think about eating vegetarian or vegan, no buying, not taking a plastic bag from the shops. But then we see how within the broader picture, we are kind of arming humans and not humans being. And I think on my behalf that this is very interesting and I was always interested about this kind of concept and thank you too we kind of theorize but also practically discuss these issues so thank you very much Sophia and Melissa for this discussion 
Thanks so much, Martina. It's been a pleasure to take part and uh, and yeah, to really uh, to really start to discuss some of the issues around green criminal criminology with you. I'm just so pleased that we have it as part of our syllabuses here at Greenwich. It's such an important part of our criminology studies. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Martina. It is, as Melissa has said, it's a really important topic. And as you say, like a lot of people think, oh, looking after the earth, I'll recycle more. I won't get that 10p plastic bag from the shop. But when you look at it in this perspective, it just gives you a wider understanding, which I think is really good. So this podcast will definitely raise more awareness and it might draw people in to have a look at green criminology. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. If the listeners are interested in taking some time to investigate sustainability, the University of Greenwich offers a lot of opportunities to do so. We are also virtually meeting every Thursday at 5pm. We share our own initiatives and information on our Instagram page called Ecoteam Greenwich. Otherwise, you can also visit the webpage www.gre.ac.uk slash forward sustained.